Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, do me a favor. If you're at home, say this with me. Say, all people. Come on, let me hear you say it. All people. One more time. All people. Come on, say it out loud. You're not crazy. It's okay to talk to yourself when you're by yourself. Look, we're in this series, this vision series called All People. And this is our vision for 2022. This is what we're focusing on, is becoming a church for all people. We feel like God has called us to this. It's been a mandate from heaven to go after this. And last week we started, or, or last week I elaborated a little bit more and got to share some very exciting news about putting a new front door on our church. And uh, there's a project that we're going to be coming up to this year. Uh, and it's, it's, it's about opening the door wide for all people. I encourage you to go back, watch last week's message. You can find it online or on the app or anywhere. And go back and listen to that message and hear my heart as we decide to put a new door for all people. And I actually want to continue that metaphor just for a moment about uh, being a door for all people. You know, when you think about church and what it should be, I believe that church should be about moving people. When I say moving people, what I mean is we are bringing people towards a goal. We're pushing people towards a mark, and that mark is maturity in Christ. I believe the church, the body, we're called to put people in a process that's moving them toward Christ's likeness. Christ is the goal. This is reflected in our mission statement. Our mission here at The Crossing is this. Number one, we're going to pursue God's presence. We're going to put God first. Number two, we're going to grow in Christ's image. The goal is Christ. The mark is Christ. And then the last one is we're going to share the hope of Jesus with all people. You know, it's a part of our mission is to make sure people are growing. You know, when you have kids, if you have kids, one of the things that all parents do or most parents do is there's somewhere in your house, I bet there's a place where a kid will, you let a kid stand up against the wall and you put a mark over his head or her head and you write the date down. And then you come back a little bit later and the kid stands up against the wall and you put another mark and, and you put the date. And what are you doing? You're tracking the growth of your child. And it's funny, inevitably, kids are never growing fast enough for themselves. They think they should have grown a few inches in a week, but they haven't. And, but what I love about kids is they want to grow. But what about church? How do we mark growth? And I'm not talking about growing in numbers or growing in larger crowds. I'm talking about you. Are you growing in the image of Christ? Are you moving closer towards the target. You know, kids, they get so upset about not growing fast enough. But people come to church for years and they never think about, worry about, or even care about if they are actually growing in Christ. So do you care about if you're growing? Do you, are you striving? Are you pressing towards that mark of maturity in Christ-likeness? And so, so what are the steps what are the steps in growing in Christ? And I want to use that front door analogy again. I want you to think about your house. So the, the first step of the house is always you got to go through the front door. What does the front door represent in the process? That represents people getting saved. This is the front door. We want people to come 
to the front door of Christ and be saved. This is the first goal in the process of moving people. What does the door represent? The door represents, hey, come and see. Come and see. You're invited. You're invited to know Jesus. You're invited to meet Jesus. The door of your house is come and see. But once someone is in the door, then they have to move. They have to move to the next part of the house. They need to come to the dining room or the family room. The dining room, the family room, this represents community. The door is salvation. The dining room is community. And I'm going to talk about that next week. But you know what? We want people in the dining room. We want them in the family room. This is come and sit. If the door is come and see, then the family room is come and sit. Pull up a seat at the table. Let's get to know each other. Let's have conversations. Let's be in community with one another so your needs can be met and you can be cared for. So the door is come and see. Then the family room is come and sit. But it doesn't stop there. We got to move to the next part. We're moving towards maturity. What are we? Salvation is great. Community is great. But we've got to keep moving forward because we are growing. And you see, I want people enjoying community in the dining room. But eventually, I want them to move to the next room. And that's the kitchen. You see, the kitchen's where you take off your bib and you put on an apron. It's not just about community and you being served a nice meal anymore. But it's about you serving others. So the kitchen is come and serve. Come and serve. We're moving people from the door, which is come and see, to the living room, which is come and sit. Now we're on to the kitchen, which is come and serve. But even that is not the finish line. We want to move people to the back porch. This is where someone who's been saved, found community, they've served. Now they can be sent out. This is, this is the goal. This is multiplication. It's where someone that you've been through the process and now you're gonna help other people go through this process. It's like you've, you've been a part of a C group. You've had, uh, you've had been so blessed by being in a great community in a C group, but now you're gonna step out and you're gonna lead your own C group. That's the goal. That's multiplication. That's moving people from the front door to the back door, okay? We're moving them from the front door to the dining room, to the kitchen, and then we're moving them out to be sent out. Today, I really want us to focus and hone in on the kitchen. Today, I'm talking about the kitchen. Today, I'm talking about serving. Today, I'm talking about stop being fed and start feeding someone else. Serving is really important. And so if we're going to be a church that's for all people, then we're going to have to be a church that serves. We're going to have to be a church that serves one another like Jesus told us to do. So it's time to get out of the living room and it's time to get in the kitchen. So look, get your apron ready because it's time to start cooking, okay? Um, And I I brought something with me today to help me preach this message because this is an all call, an all call to serve, an all call. I'm looking for volunteers. And uh, you know, I'm a dog fan through and through, but I'm gonna do something today that you will never see me do again. I'm I'm a Georgia Bulldog, you cut me, I bleed red. You cut you, you also bleed red, by the way. But I, I want to do something that I've never done before, and I'm fixing to put something on. Give me just a second. <laughs> this is taking longer than I thought. 
Okay. You see this? You'll never see it again. Take a screenshot, do whatever you want. But listen, I am appealing today to your better angels, okay? I know I am a dog fan and don't hate me if you're a dog fan, but the church, the crossing, we're in the Tennessee, we're in Tennessee. And what is our state? What's our nickname? We're called the Volunteers. So I'm appealing to the volunteer state today to stand up and take on that, that volunteerism. You know why we're called the volunteers is because when the Secretary of State in the Mexican War asked for volunteers, he specifically asked for 2,800 volunteers to come forth out of the state of Tennessee. But 30,000 Tennesseans responded and showed up. We are the volunteers. So look, I'm calling you. I'm asking God that he would send more than enough volunteers, leaders, and people who desire to accomplish God's will. And if that ain't enough for you, well, then let's let Jesus be enough. Okay, so turn with me to John chapter 13 and verse 1. And let's look at Jesus' example in this. It says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world. He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father, had given all things into his hands, and he had come from God, and he was going back to God. He rose up from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet. And he wiped them with a towel that was around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, what I'm doing, you don't understand right now, but you'll understand later. Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus said, if, you don't, if I don't wash you, then you have no part of me. You have no share with me. To which Simon Peter replied, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, the one who is bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of them. For he knew who was to betray him. That's when he said, not all of you are clean. Then he had washed their feet and he put his outer garments and resumed his place. He said, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for I am so. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know, today in our brief time together here on Virtual Church. I, I just want to walk through a few things in this passage. We're just going to look at this scripture and just kind of walk through it a little bit and talk about what does it mean to be a servant? What does it mean to serve and what has God called us to? And I want to start by saying this, secure people serve people. I'm going to say that again. Secure people serve people. You can't serve others. You can't lay your life down for others unless you have a confidence within. And I'm not, I'm talking about a holy confidence. I'm talking about a God confidence. You're secure in who you are in Christ. The Bible said Jesus had all 
knowledge. This is something over and over again you see in John's gospel. It, it's, John is showing us Jesus is supreme over the universe. He is the sovereign of the universe. And Jesus having all power and having all knowledge, what does he do with his power? Well, what would you do with your power? If I'm Jesus and I know that, the, we just read it, that the devil was stirring up someone against me and then that someone was sitting right next to me you know what I would do if I had the knowledge of that and the power? What I would do is what D.A. Carson says. He says, with such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected Jesus to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of his divine breath. That's what I would have done. I would have taken the devil and Judas out right there. But what does Jesus do? Jesus instead washes the feet of the disciples, even Judas. You see, Jesus is so secure in his power and his status that he doesn't have to try and tear someone else down in order to get what he wants. He actually lays his life down for the good of others. Jesus knew where he had come from, and he knew where he was headed. Jesus had a grip on his origins, and he knew his destiny and what it was. Therefore, he was man enough to lay down his pride, to lay down his ego, and everything else, and to be a servant. He was secure. That's, you know what? I'm secure in my Georgia fandom today. We won the championship. We got the victory. We are the champions. I'm secure. I can wear this today and, and, and be okay. Listen, Secure people serve people. If you're insecure, you're going to try to fight and climb and get to a place of prominence because you're trying to fulfill something within. You'll manipulate people. Jesus, with his power, with his authority, he doesn't manipulate people. He compels people by laying down his life. Think of the scene here. Gee, this, is, this is John's scene. This is his last supper scene. And Jesus is on his way to the cross. And, and really, if you read the Gospel of John, the whole narrative slows down. It puts on a screeching halt. And really, the last half of the book almost covers only one day in Jesus's life. And it starts here with the disciples in an upper room eating the last supper before Jesus is to go and to be crucified. And it says that Jesus, he gets up from supper. It's really abrupt because according to tradition, a servant would wash the feet of people before the meal, not during it. And perhaps this is Jesus' response to his arguing disciples. You see, we know from other gospels that arguments were occurring right here at the end. Jesus is about to die, and his disciples are having arguments amongst themselves about which disciple is the greatest, which one is the most celebrated, which one will have the most status in his upcoming kingdom. In fact, Everyone's ticked at James and John because their mother was trying to negotiate their status in Jesus' kingdom. One to sit at the right, one to sit at the left. And, you know, this is funny to me because here's mommy trying to secure a spot for little Johnny on the team. And you have to coach a kid's uh, sports team to get, you'll get the reality of that. A mama trying to get little Jimmy and Johnny on the all-star team somehow. If you're a coach, you've been there. And, you know, so... Everyone's fighting about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus is fixing to die. I mean, just imagine this scene. And it's, 
almost as if Jesus probably goes unannounced and unnoticed. He gets up from the reclining couches with the, which they use to recline and eat their famous meal. And he takes off his outer garment. He fills a water basin. He wraps a towel around his waist. He kneels down behind the men. And starting with Peter, he starts to wash their feet. Jesus is preaching a message without opening his mouth. What's he telling his disciples? I like how Pastor Ed Newton says this. He says, it's time to take off the bib and put on the apron. It's time to take off the bib and put on the apron. You see, a bib and an apron, they're made out of the same material. The difference is where you put it. They're both there to keep you clean, but the difference is how you use it. You put a bib up here to keep you clean while you eat, but you put an apron on to keep you clean while you serve. Jesus gets up from the supper table. He gets up from the dinner table. He's saying, I've been here long enough. It's time to put on this apron. And you know what, church, this is what I want to tell you. If you've been serving God for a while, it's time to take the bib off. It's time, you've been sitting at the dinner table. You've been sitting at the family table for a while. That's great. I'm glad you've been fed. But it's time to take the bib off. Supper is over. It's time to put the apron on and to get in the kitchen. We've eaten our meals. Now it's time to serve others. And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and put this apron on. Because I'd rather you see this apron than Tennessee for this whole sermon. So let me put this apron on. One second. I try. <laughs> there we go. It's time to take the bib off and it's time to put the apron on. You know, recently, Ashley and I, we went to a cooking class. It was a lot of fun. I would definitely do it again. But when we got in the car after the cooking class, we looked at each other and we said, you know what? This is why we go to restaurants. <laughs> it took us a solid three hours to prep all the ingredients, to cook it, and then to clean it up. It was work, but it was rewarding. We learn something. You know, the thing about a restaurant is you just show up and someone does all the work. And you see, God is trying to move us out of that mentality. He's trying to move us from being served at the dinner table to getting up and getting ourselves into the kitchen. And I'm trying to move you. I feel like my job as a pastor is to move you out of comfort and push you into your calling. Do you know, this is my job. It's to move you out of comfort and push you into the, call, into the calling. I'm trying to get you into the kitchen. Ephesians 4, it tells us this. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teacher. And their responsibility is to make people feel good. No. Do everything you can to serve people. No. The main job of these pastors is to equip it's to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. Our spiritual leaders in the body of Christ are supposed to be like, more like personal trainers than they are massage therapists. Have you ever had a personal trainer? What do they do? They push you. They propel you. They won't let you slack. They're trying to get you to the goal. They're not going to let you just take it easy and take off. We want our spiritual leaders to make us feel better where we're achy and sore like a massage therapist. But no, our spiritual leaders are supposed to be like trainers, 
Pastor Mark Sayers says this. He says, this is one of the crises that we're facing right now in the church. He says, for the longest time, the church has been what he calls a therapeutic church. The church has been about making people feel better. But God didn't call our spiritual leaders to make us feel better. He called them to pull us out of our selfish tendencies and to get lost in the mission of Christ and his cross in the world. Stanley Howard Wass says it like this, pastoral care is about the upbuilding of the church by the transformation of our lives, which happens when we're given good work to do for God and others. Good work frees us from the self-centeredness created by the hurts we cherish. Vocation is to be more desired than victimhood. Woo, that's a statement right there. What's he saying? He's saying, really, church isn't about you and making you feel better. Church isn't about me. Church is about losing myself to find myself in the mission of God. Now, let me qualify that statement so people don't get upset. You know, there are times when you need to pull back. There are times, there are seasons when it's, it's just too much. You need to pull back. There's some things you got to take care of. I'm not telling you to burn yourself out on serving the world. There are seasons where you have to step back. I understand that. But sometimes people let seasons turn into decades, okay? Don't do that. Take a halftime, all right? Take you a halftime break. Take you a break between quarters. But get back in the game. Don't just sit at the dining room all day. Put on an apron. Let's get in the kitchen. We got some work to do. The Bible says that Jesus laid aside his outer garment. He puts on a towel. He pours water. He washes their feet. You know, in this culture, the domain of foot washing was literally the domain of a slave. The entire process of drawing water, washing feet, disposing of the water. That was all jobs that servants and slaves were to do. You know, this meal that Jesus and his disciples were eating, they were eating in a secret place in an upper room because the climate surrounding Jesus had become so tense and his crucifixion was drawing near. They're eating this meal together in private and there's no servants in the room to wash their feet. And so what does Jesus do? He takes the role on himself. You see, people traveled by foot they walked everywhere in Jesus' day on those dusty roads all day long so the mud and the dirt would get caked on their feet. And servants were there to wash the feet of their masters. In the Greco-Roman culture, it doesn't matter how old a slave or a servant was or who the slave or servant was, they were not allowed to refuse this job of washing feet. They had to do it whether they wanted to or not. And the, the foot basin that Jesus used, is it literally became a sign that was synonymous with slavery. If you wash someone's feet, that meant you were subjugating yourself to that person. You were bowing low to that person. This is where Jesus is different than any other ruler or master or teacher there is. Jesus was Lord. Jesus was their rabbi. Jesus was their superior. But I want you to hear me say this. In history, in the whole of all ancient literature, there is no other instance anywhere of a superior who washes the feet of a subordinate. I want to say that again. Jesus is the only master in all of ancient history that we know of that ever gets down on their feet, off their feet, and down on their knees 
and washes the feet of others. There is no God like our God. Jesus is so good. In this one act, he encapsulates his whole purpose for coming. In this one act, Jesus' ministry can be summed up. Jesus strips off his outer garment. He puts on the garment of a servant. He takes on a position of a slave, and he gets in the dirt and dust of his disciples' lives. Paul says it like this in Philippians 2.5. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he empties himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, the way the world works, the world works like a pyramid or a triangle. You know how a pyramid or a triangle works. The bottom or the base supports the top. And if you're on the bottom, in the, in the culture in this world, a lot of people, your goal, if you're on the bottom of the food chain, if you're on the bottom of the period, uh, the <laughs> bottom of the pyramid, your goal is to get to the top. And in fact, our culture, we celebrate people who started from the bottom and now we here, as Drake says. They have arrived. The way of the world, to me, it reminds me of a, a game of like King of the Hill. I don't know if you remember playing King of the Hill as a kid, but the rules are simple. Everyone is scrambling to the top. You're kicking, you're elbowing. But once you get to the top, what do you do when you get there? You try to stay there. You push everyone else down. Anybody who challenges to take the hill, you push them down. That's how our world works. That's how leadership works in our world. But Jesus does the exact opposite of this. Jesus starts at the top and Jesus claws his way down to the bottom so that others can reach the top. Jesus goes lower and lower. Think about what that scripture says. Jesus starts at the top of the pyramid. He is God, but he goes a little lower. He divests himself of his royal privileges. And he, even beyond that, he takes on the likeness of a servant. He takes on our flesh and blood. And then he goes even lower than that. He, he lays down his life for imperfect people. And he goes even lower than that. He takes on the death of a cross that's reserved for the worst kind of people. Jesus lays his life down. Jesus starts at the bottom, starts at the top, but he goes all the way to the bottom so that you and I can be lifted up. Jesus inverts the pyramid. He turns it upside down. And then he looks at us as followers and he says, do the same. You know what it means to follow Jesus? You know what it means to be a follower, a disciple? What it means to be a Christian? Christianity is this. Christianity is a race to the back of the line. Just as Jesus served us, we now serve one another. At the dinner table that night, Jesus stripped himself of his outer garment and he puts on servanthood. And all this is foreshadowing of what he's about to do on the cross. He's, he's stripped off his clothes. He's been stripped of his clothes and he's put on a cross. He strips himself of his God privileges and he puts on the role of a servant and he comes and he gets down in our mess. What kind of God does this? What kind of God weeps with us? 
What kind of God bleeds for us? What kind of leader refuses to stay in the pristine halls of heaven and chooses to walk the dusty streets as one of us? That's our Jesus. He is good. He's so good. Jesus says this, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And you know what? When I think about the people of the Crossing Church, when I think about some of the people that I see week in, week out, I'm overwhelmed at the people that serve at our church. I'm overwhelmed at the people that have taken off their bib and they've put on an apron. You see, I don't think I'm the greatest person in this church. I think the greatest people in this church are the ones who are serving the greatest. They might not be seen, they might not be recognized, but actually as I end today's sermon, I wanna give a few shout outs. You know, Paul used to do this in his letters. Read the book of Romans. He ends his letter with shout outs. I want you to know some of the servants here at the Crossing Church. I wanna tell you about some of the greats. I think about Stan and Star Gunther. They're perfect people that they, they take ownership in this church. I've seen Stan mop floors in our kitchen countless times. I've seen him fix lights and faucets. I've seen him fix floor drains. Uh, I've seen him wipe windows. I mean, uh, Stan and Star, they serve every week in and out throughout the week. They're some of the greatest among us. I think about Janet Gill. I think about her life group and how great her group is, but I especially think about the time Janet and Jill Green and Tobby Upton and Melody Putnam, how they got together and they threw a single mother that they didn't really know a baby shower last, uh, last fall because there's a single mother and she's bringing a kid into the world and she needs some stuff and this group steps up. They serve, they serve her. I th- Janet and these, these girls are some of the greatest. I think about Abby Curly, who's a freshman in college, but she's leading a group of young teens in our, in our youth group. She's leading a creative team, inspiring students to come and to serve. And people love being around Abby because you know what? Abby loves people and she serves people. She's one of the greatest. I think about even last week, Tina Bory. She's a lady who serves uh, our next gen department. And one of our one of our uh, people on staff here, they were busy and they didn't have time uh, because they were doing something else when a new person showed up and they were scared to bring their child to the nursery for, for the first time. But what does Tina do? Tina takes this person under her wing. She talks to them, makes them feel comfortable, takes them over to the kids' building, gives them uh, an explanation of our check-in process, helps them get registered uh, so when she is ready to bring her kid that, that they'll be ready and she feels comfortable. And this is Tina Bory. She goes after it with all her heart every week. Tina's one of the greats around here. She's one of the greats. I think about Bruce and Renee who have jumped in next-gen ministry with all of their heart. They pour in uh, every week. What I love about Bruce and Renee is they attend the first service and then they come and then they serve the second service. Almost every Sunday they're here and they do so much. I remember being in a prayer meeting one time and there was a father who was there and he asked for a request for his family and Bruce piped up and he said that father's kids' names because Bruce knew them because he was already in that kid's life and it blew that father away. Here is this stranger that is in their kid's life and they already know their situations and they're already praying for him. I love Bruce and Renee. They serve the next gen. They're some of the greats. They're one of the greats. I think about 
A.J. Oliver, who stands at the front door almost every Sunday. And you know what A.J. does? He's got a little piece of paper, and he's writing names down on them, and he memorizes people's names. That way, when people come on this property on Sunday morning, he can call them by name. And you will be so amazed at the people that are blown away that that man knows their name. I think about Brian and Carolyn Evans, who recently, even just last year, they volunteered at the YMCA. They came and served at the YMCA as a coach for a young girls volleyball team. What's amazing is Brian and Carolyn, they don't even have any young kids of their own right now. Their kids are grown, but they served uh, this volleyball team. And then at the end, they had a great party where they gathered all this volleyball team up together and they brought them together. And really it was a time to bless them and also share the gospel with them. But Brian and Carolyn, they took some of these young parents and they started taking them under their wing for the purpose of discipleship. Come on, that's serving the world. That's reaching out. I think of people like Gayla and Brenda Short that for years and years and years, They've been going to Silverdale Prison and Catoosa County Jail and they're preaching the gospel. They're bringing the good news in there and they're, and they're writing letters. And what I love, I've seen Gayla Turner do this over and over again. She'll, she'll, the, a young lady that she's preached the gospel to in prison will get out. And you know what Gayla does when they get out and they don't have anything? Gayla goes rounding up furniture. Gayla goes finding them a car to drive. Gayla takes them under her wing and mentors them to help them get back on their feet. Gayla is one of the greats because she serves. Here's what I'm asking, church. I'm asking for you to take off your bib and to put on your apron. Get in the game. Here's my question to you. Who do you serve? Who do you serve? If we're gonna be a church for all people, we're gonna have to be a church that serves all people. On January 20th, 1961, John F. Kennedy was sworn in of the President of the United States. And in his inaugural address, he gave one of the most famous quotes ever attributed to a president. He says, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Come on, that's a great line. That's an awesome line and we still remember it today, but it also applies to us in the kingdom of God. Listen, fellow believer, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, let's be people who race to the back of the line. Let's be people who wash each other's feet. Let's not ask what someone else can do for us, but let's say, what can we do for someone else? Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. We receive plenty. Now it's time to move into that more blessed category, and that is giving and serving. Jesus said, What I've done for you, do for one another. Father, I pray for your people today. I pray that we would be a church. I pray that we would be known not for how gifted we are, how charismatic we are, not for, Lord, all that we can accomplish and do, but let us be known as a church that serves, that serves one another. Help us to be a people, Lord, to take off the bib and to put on the apron. Help us to move towards you in Christ's likeness. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen, amen. Church, thank you for being here. Hope you have a great President's Day weekend. We'll see you 9 and 11 live next week or 10 o'clock right here on Virtual Church.